Today on the Sunshine Economy, the effort to feed South Florida during the pandemic. I don't have work. That's why I come into here. The grocery is very expensive. Food banks continue to see big demand, even as the economy tries to rebound. There's a lot of demand out there for food, and we're bringing in as much as we can to get it out there. I'm Tom Hudson. Also on today's program, the banker, baker, and bartender make some decisions in the pandemic economy. We did something that is a sign of the times in this just low-rate environment that we're in. We do need some kind of additional resources and talent. I've been busy. It's just been, like, slow-moving. It's all ahead after the news. Welcome to the Sunshine Economy on WLRN. I'm Tom Hudson. Thanks for listening and supporting public radio. Next to San Lazaro Catholic Church in Hialeah is an empty lot. It's covered in a mix of grass and gravel. The lot is just two blocks east of the Palmetto Expressway. There are a few trees lining the northern edge, just enough to litter the ground nearby with some dried leaves. A mud puddle a couple of dozen feet across was a reminder of just how much rain had fallen earlier this month. But on the day we visited last week, it was bright, sunny, even a little bit cool. The lot had been opened, allowing cars and trucks and SUVs to drive in and wait. Before the chain link fence was opened, cars lined the nearby neighborhood for blocks in a scene that has become all too familiar in South Florida and across the nation. Hundreds of people waiting for boxes of food. There were shiny Cadillacs and older Honda Accords with their paint blistered from years in the sun. Some cars were idling. Other drivers had turned off their engines and opened up their windows. It was a little breezy and the humidity had dropped, so you didn't have to run the air conditioning to stay comfortable. Here and there, some people were out of their cars. A group gathered around a small SUV that had a flat tire. Another guy, back by the trees, had his hood open on his sedan, checking his battery connections. More than 20 rows of cars, at least 10 vehicles deep, sat waiting for 9 o'clock on this Wednesday morning. Julio Perez was sitting on the corner of his car. He said he had come to this Feeding South Florida food distribution site for the past two months. Really, the people, including me, needed this help for the COVID-19. Um, you know, I, I don't have work. That's why I come into here. He said he lost his job working a second shift at an embroidery company in Medley about seven months ago. He's married, two kids, 18 and 20 years old. They all live together. He said he's still collecting state unemployment for the time being. I mean, I have money, but I... For paying my bills, paying my rent, but it's tight. Yeah. It's tight, really yeah. tight. But I said some of the food he will get probably will be used for Thanksgiving. Biba Ferrer also lives in Hialeah and has visited the food distribution event before. She said she's retired. She was waiting in her car listening to Spanish language talk radio. I asked her why she came. Why? Because the, the, the grocery is very expensive. All produce coming up. It's very expensive. Need, needed some control for that. Or more money. <laughs> Even before COVID-19 hit, 
Almost one million households in Florida were considered food insecure, according to the U.S. Department of Agriculture. Food security is a concept that means getting enough to eat for an active, healthy life. About one in ten met the definition of food insecure in Florida last year. That's close to the national average. For months since the pandemic, South Florida has been ranked as one of the most food insecure areas of the country. The Census Bureau has been surveying Americans every two weeks on all kinds of economic challenges because of the virus. About a half million people report sometimes or often not having enough to eat in our region, and most of them report losing income. About a third said it was because of the germ. They're worried about getting it. They've been laid off. The company they work for has closed or business has fallen off and they've been furloughed. The most recent survey was given in late October and early November. It found a half million people in South Florida have gotten free groceries in the previous week. Charles Harrington from Miami Springs was in a car with his wife on this Wednesday waiting for the food distribution to begin at San Lazaro Church in Hialeah. I didn't expect, I didn't expect this many people. He said it was the first time they had come to this location, but they'd visited other food distribution events before because their finances have been hit by the pandemic. Well, we're a, little, a lot harder than I expected. How so? Well, I don't have the income or something like that we did. and had, had extra income and I lost that. Merlins Valdez was a repeat visitor. She said she's a single mom. She doesn't have a job and collects disability income. She came to help stay safe and planned to give the food to her mom who lives alone. It has helped us a lot with the food, with the help, trying not to be in the stores, um, trying not to get sick and get my, my mother or my kids sick or anything. I mean, it does help us a lot. On her rearview mirror, hanging from a colorful ribbon, was a medallion. This is my son's um, graduation, the medal from graduation during the COVID that it was in June and he couldn't graduate. So the graduation was through a drive-thru. So I keep it here as a memory that he finished his 12th grade and he did a good job, either that he didn't have his, what I wanted, the type of um, graduation, being there. This is something that it's an appreciation of knowing that besides all that we're going through, he did it. As 9 o'clock approached, trunks and tailgates started rising across the lot, a sign that the vehicles would soon start driving through the pickup points. Some of the SUVs already have their back hatches open, ready to drive through the distribution line so that the volunteers can pop in the box of vegetables and other food that they're distributing here. I sound a little muffled under my face masks and face shield. Everybody has masks. If they don't have them on in their car, when they're by themselves, if you go by and say hello, they'll quickly put it on for you. Folks keeping their distance, patient, helps that it's a nice, cool morning here in Hialeah. As the cars made their way off the grass and gravel and on to the parking lot of San Lazaro Church, Zoe Prieto was counting drivers and passengers. You keep a count? Yes. Yes? How yeah. mama? What are we up to? Right now we're at 37. We just started, but we normally get this. is 900 tickets are outside. Buenos dias. La semana que viene jueves en Amelia. Okay? 
It was only a few minutes after 9. These were the first of the few hundred vehicles carrying 900 people. After filing into the parking lot, two lanes were formed. The cars would pull up two and three at a time. Volunteers grabbed pre-packed boxes off pallets and put them into trunks. It was two boxes for each person in a car. I see an eggplant, tomatoes, tomatoes, a dozen eggs, a gallon of milk. Yeah, the apples are very good. Some potatoes in there. I see some onions in each of these boxes. Quite, Quite a mix. It took about an hour for the cars that had waited in the lot next door to pass through and collect the food and then close the trunk. This was one of a half dozen such food distribution sites from Feeding South Florida on this day, and almost two dozen held last week. Still to come, the effort to feed South Florida. There's a lot of demand out there for food, and we're bringing in as much as we can to get it out there. We're back on the Sunshine Economy on WLRN. I'm Tom Hudson. Thanks again for listening, and thanks for supporting public media. In Paco Valles's office are a couple of guitars. One is a Les Paul. There's also a small Marshall amplifier. We spoke with them via Skype, so you could see them in the background when we had our interview. Alez runs Feeding South Florida. It's the largest food bank operator providing food to the region's four counties. The musical gear gets a little bit of use during his long days of leading the organization. Velez is a metalhead. He listens and plays heavy metal, thrash metal. He's a headbanger. And among the music he's been listening to is some of the music he grew up with in the 1980s, like Metallica. Some of the songs provide kind of some sort of a, a, a of solace for me. You know, some of these kind of are things that are comfortable and and they take you back to a place where everything's going to be okay. It may be loud and aggressive to some, but music can be an escape during tough times. And Feeding South Florida is among those organizations at the center of the tough times during the pandemic. As tens of thousands of people lost jobs and income throughout the region, demand for food has skyrocketed. At one point, Feeding South Florida had 45 different locations across the region each week where people could pick up food. Now that has scaled back a little bit. It now supplies about two dozen places every week for people to come and get food. We spoke with Velez earlier this month via Skype. Uh, Nine months into this pandemic, Feeding South Florida continues to see a lot of families coming through our lines. When we first started uh, our distributions, we didn't realize that so many families were going to be in need. We set out with uh, enough food for about 500 families in our first distribution, quickly found out that 500 was about 3,000 shy of what we needed. Uh, lines started uh, kind of to form in the streets. And so we, we rolled out uh, 40 to 50 distributions pretty much immediately across our four-county area. What a lot of folks may think about but really don't realize is that South Florida is really a destination spot. Destination for what? Uh, destination for, for tourists, right? So we have a lot of folks that come down here. Um, so it's, it's a hospitality-driven industry. We have hotels, restaurants, 
Uh, we have uh, three major international airports. We have the cruise industries down here. So, so many people depend on this industry in order for in order to to keep their family under a roof and with food on their table. So when when COVID hit, you know, we quickly saw the number of individuals that we serve go up from 706,000 to to over 1.5 million individuals who needed our assistance. Last year, Feeding South Florida distributed 61 and a half million pounds of food across our four county area. This year, fiscal year ending June 30th, we distributed 119 million pounds of food, so almost double. And if you go year over year, the last 12 months ending September 30th, we distributed 148 million pounds of food to this same area. And you don't see any let up in demand. We do not. Um, even though, you know, we, we look at, at some folks or some places opening back up, they're not really opening up to full capacity. That's one. Two, folks that are starting to go back to work. They still have some payments to make from from a couple of months ago when they were not making their their rent or mortgage payments, but we're getting some some relief back then. They still have to make those payments. So our families are going to continue to struggle well into 2021 uh, until they get stable. Uh, But right now we continue to see family struggle. We continue to see small business struggle and we continue to see some of the bigger businesses struggle. So things aren't letting up for for our industries, for our uh, our businesses, and especially for our families. We are seeing unemployment rates begin to go down. We've seen that cut pretty significantly compared to the high, the sharp spike and sudden spike we saw in April and May. But we're seeing longer-term unemployment, and we're seeing frustrated workers drop out of the labor market. And I imagine those are amongst those clients that you're seeing in those food distribution lines. We are. We're seeing folks, and and we we hand out vouchers to all the individuals that come through our lines, and and some of the questions that we have on there, really around you know, were have you ever received food assistance prior to the pandemic? And over forty five percent said no. This is the first time. Um, were you affected by the pandemic? And 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 a lot of them were saying yes. This, and then where did you work? And a lot of them are in that hotel and, and restaurant industry, but we're also seeing folks from outside that that are almost indirectly associated with the hospitality industry, like some of the arts and some of these other folks that put, put together creative packages for restaurants and for hotels. So they've been affected. We've seen nonprofits being affected. We've seen uh, retail stores, you know, at the time, Bloomingdale's, Macy's, JCPenney, some of these other folks that have been affected. So we're seeing really that that a lot of a lot of industries are not immune to this issue. What are you expecting in the months ahead? We move into the wintertime, traditionally the high season for tourism. That's in question right now because we're seeing case counts grow not only in Florida, but of course, elsewhere. What are you preparing for, even as you're still seeing demand today? But what about in a month and three months and six months time? Because you've got to have that long lead time in order to meet that demand. So there's a few things that we're seeing, and and this is going to turn into kind of almost a perfect storm. Right now, Feeding South Florida is in triage mode. And and by triage mode, I mean, we're still kind of trying to meet the need, meet the need, meet the need. There's a lot of demand out there for food, and we're, and we're bringing in as much as we can to, to, to get it out there. Um, ordinarily, in a, in a disaster situation, our um, triage mode lasts no more than a week, maybe two weeks at the very, very, uh, at its longest. That would be like during a natural disaster, a hurricane or something? Right, something like that. However, in this kind of situation, 
the need continues to increase and we continue to see this need. Once people are go back to start going back to work and, and, and we find a vaccine and people start going back to some sort of a, a normal lifestyle, we go into what's now a long-term recovery, which means that we're going to start looking at our little families and saying, okay, you're back to work. However, you still have a lot of payments to make. So we're going to continue to serve those families until we can stabilize them. Some may need help for six months. Some may need help for 24 months. So we're going to look at that over the long term. Once we start getting into the long-term recovery period, we're still in triage. The feds released a, the CARES Act funds, which uh, expire December 30th, 2020. We've seen a steady decline in those CARES Act funding, especially the food coming out of that, which is a coronavirus food assistance program or CFAP. The CFAP money went to distributors. So you look at distributors like uh, Cisco and, and U.S. Foods and some of these some of these other folks that, that receive those, those funds in order to, to buy food from farmers, dairy farmers, cattle farmers and, and, and produce farmers, package all that and then get it to the nonprofit organizations like Feeding South Florida. Feeding South Florida received no money for that. So we, we, we started that program in May, of May June of 2020, and we, Feeding South Florida started with 160 truckloads every single week. So tractor trailer loads, 18-wheelers, 160 of those every week. Phase two saw that decline to 110 tractor trailer loads every single week. Uh, South Florida continues to be at the very top of, of the high needs list. Phase three saw us drop down to about 60 truckloads every single week. We are now in phase four that'll take us through the end of this calendar year, and we're only receiving about 15 truckloads a week. And so that's going to stop at the end of this calendar year, so we're not going to have any of that product in January and moving forward. We also are receiving a, um, an allotment of, of uh, trade mitigation product. As a lot of folks know, we're having trade issues with a lot of other countries. So our government is buying up a lot of those that produce, and we're getting that produce and getting it out to our families. At the end of December, all that trade mitigation bonus product is going to go away too. So we're looking at a commodity cliff of more than 50%. So more than 50% of the food that we're getting in and getting out to our families is going to go away. So now we're looking at, at purchasing even more product. We've already made about $1.25, $1.3 million food purchases over this, this pandemic. We're probably going to have to purchase another 2 to $3 million worth of food in order to try to serve our families starting late December, January, February. It's supply and demand, economics 101. Your demand continues to be strong, as we mentioned earlier. The supply that you just walked us through there, you called it a commodity cliff. The supply could end significantly, not all of it, not entirely, but a big portion of it come the the end of the calendar year in December. Some of that fueled by, it sounds like, federal legislation on stimulus money. That debate is ongoing here. The fate of any new round of stimulus remains uncertain at this point. In the meantime, you are still feeding families and you're still trying to figure out what those supply chains are going to look like in January, February, and March. Our eyes are glued to the television to find out, you know, are we going to get these stimulus funds? Not so much we as in the nonprofits, but uh, folks that are going to get that food flowing again. Our families are already hurting. We're, we're struggling to find food to, to get it out to those households. Families are struggling through no fault of their own. These businesses closed down, were closed through no fault of their own. They had jobs. They were doing well. They were feeding their families. They had roof over their heads. 
Now, because we had to close because of this pandemic, now, they have, now they're struggling. They're desperate. They're afraid. They don't know where they're going to get their food from. We're working hard to try to bring it in as quickly as we can. How do you think this demand for food, this sharp spike and sustained spike that you are experiencing at Feeding South Florida, how do you think that shapes any kind of pandemic economic rebound for this region? So the first thing that I, I see happening is as we start going back to work, any business owner is going to start looking at, do I really need that many employees? Right. And so so we're not going to see all the people going back to work, especially not immediately. As we continue to open up, we're, we're going to be very uh, careful about the number of people we bring back and, and how we open. And, and so that's going to affect the amount of people that are going back to work. Definitely. Second is when you look at at some of the the cases that we've had, especially during uh, kind of June, July, where it was spiked. We have yet to see what what this is what's going to happen over the rest of this this calendar year. A lot of folks may be a little uh, nervous about coming to to Florida and spending their time here. So we may not have the infusion of tourism dollars that we usually have, um, especially during during <laughs> during the winter time when a lot of folks come down here. Right. There's a lot of things that at stake and at play for us. Feeding South Florida CEO Paco Valles speaking with us via Skype. Still to come, the changing face of the food insecure in our region. All of a sudden, we had more middle class families that all of a sudden found themselves unemployed and were running through their savings and didn't know how to put food on their tables. This is the Sunshine Economy on WLRN. I'm Tom Hudson. As always, thanks for listening and supporting WLRN. Don't forget you can visit our website, WLRN.org. Click on Radio and look for the Sunshine Economy tab. Like other holidays this year, the pandemic is changing how we celebrate Thanksgiving. The Centers for Disease Control went as far as recommending Americans stay at home and celebrate Thanksgiving only with those people you live with. Food is central to the holiday. Food banks and meal programs usually experience an increase in demand during the winter holidays. This year, the demand for food has been ongoing, though, because of the virus and how it has hurt industries that the South Florida economy relies on, primarily travel and hospitality. It also has hit senior citizens. Of the South Florida households that say they often do not have enough food to eat, one out of three are with people 65 years old and older. This is according to bi-monthly surveys by the Census Bureau. Now, that's about the same as before the pandemic. So the jump in demand at food banks has primarily come from younger people, especially those in their 40s and 50s. It presents a challenge to organizations that have supported senior citizens with food now experiencing more demand from younger people. Danielle Hartman is the CEO at Jewish Family Services in Boca Raton. It provides several programs, including health care, mental health, and career services, in addition to a food pantry and meals. We spoke with her about the group's food programs during COVID-19. What has demand been like over the course of the last eight months with the pandemic? 
when COVID started in March, um, we didn't immediately see a surge in our food pantry request. But within about 30 days, we saw 20 households uh, all come pretty much at the same time, which is very atypical. Typically, there's a natural ebb and a flow of maybe one or two households coming every month, and then you have families rolling off. So we had no families rolling off, and all of a sudden, 20 new households coming on. Um, At the same time, with our Meals on Wheels, we saw a 41% increase within between March and May. And that was primarily because as older adults felt safer at home and limited the number of home care workers coming in, or they couldn't go out for restaurants, or they couldn't, you know, they're not already making their own meals, but they didn't have a way to go shopping. They needed meals. They needed prepared meals. So we really saw a skyrocket in the prepared meals side. As the pandemic has worn on, has that spike been sustained in demand? So once we had that initial spike in both our Meals on Wheels and our food pantry, then we've leveled off. So we've not seen another spike. But the spike has remained, though. The the level has remained elevated. Yes, yes. The spike has remained. And we've been fortunate um, through some of our community partners at the county level, um, through our area agency on aging, we got some additional funding through the CARES Act to sustain our Meals on Wheels at that elevated level through the end of December. And then recently we got word that another um, funder of ours is going to provide the funding we needed to keep that going from December until the summer of 2021. So we are very fortunate, you know, to leverage those partnerships. Um, so that we're, we're hanging on. And then in the food pantry, it, again, it's leveled off. We saw that initial spike, but I don't necessarily think, especially in the food pantry, I have a feeling we're going to have a second wave as, you know, People are either, as we maybe go back into another shutdown, or people remain unemployed. In South Florida, which includes the three big counties, Palm Beach, Broward, and Miami-Dade, we saw unemployment spike up immediately in in April, and we have seen it come down 300,000 fewer jobs in South Florida compared to last year at this time. And those are even the people that are actually counted as unemployed. I mean, that's a whole probably another radio show for you. Yeah, indeed it is. (laughs) They're not actively engaged in the count in, in that count. What we're seeing, because we also have a current employment services, is that um, now those families, as they're remaining unemployed or unable to find employment, then they're getting referred to our food pantry. So I do think, even though we had that one jump towards the beginning of the pandemic, we're going to have another spike. And so we are doing everything we can, and we've benefited from the generosity of the community to ensure that we have the funds available to absorb those um, additional households when they come. What's the profile of those in need, and is it any different than the profile of those in need coming to your organization prior to the pandemic? There was a, a demographic study done by the Jewish Federation in, uh, I think it was in 2018, and the statistic that jumped out at me at that time was that one in five households were living on the economic edge, just one bill or crisis away from not knowing how they were going to put food on their table or pay their bill. So when the pandemic hit, it was like, oh my gosh, this is the one in five. So whereas before our pantry was serving primarily older adults, you know, in their 80s, we also had younger families. 
Um, all of a sudden we had more middle-class families that all of a sudden found themselves unemployed and didn't, and were running through their savings and didn't know how to put food on their table. So I think the profile changed in that people and families who used to actually make donations to our food pantry or actually participate as volunteers all of a sudden needed help. So much of the pandemic has been wrought with uncertainty at the household level, the individual level, and clearly at the enterprise and organized level, as you're experiencing. Uh, I'm wondering how you are planning for the future. The future may include a vaccine or vaccines, certainly at some unknown point in time. But as you've experienced, your spike in demand has sustained itself over the past several months. So how are you looking at 2021 and that demand for food services particularly? We are really ramping up our community food drives, our, our food drives done through churches and synagogues, our food drives done through businesses. People understand at a very base level hunger. And so they're very willing, especially, you know, most like publics and a lot of grocery stores have buy one, get one free or, you know, some sort of two for one. And they'll donate that extra free item to our pantry. So we're really gearing up to rapidly increase our food donations through food drives. And then at the same time, working strategically on purchasing and, and, you know, when we're buying things, we're buying more in more quantities to take advantage of price, um, you know, price discounts for buying in larger quantities. Um, so that's really how we're doing it. And then fundraising. I mean, we're talking to donors all the time and raising funds so we could sustain the levels. This time of year, thoughts automatically go to food. It's Thanksgiving. We're moving into the general winter holiday season. You, you know, it would be normal for food banks such as yours to begin to experience an increase in demand. Are you experiencing any kind of seasonal change in demand? It's not so much seasonal. I, I can tell you that normally every Thanksgiving, our agency uh, feeds we would bring about almost 800 older adults who had nowhere else to celebrate Thanksgiving onto our campus and give them a Thanksgiving meal as a community. And and this year, due to COVID, we weren't able to do that, but we pivoted. And uh, the day before Thanksgiving, we actually have over 100 volunteers that are going to bring meals to those seniors because they can't come to us. So I think for us, our, our seasonal challenge was, wow, how do we continue to somehow bring joy and allow these older adults with no place to go who are already isolated at home, something that lets them know the community is there and they still care. So we're really lucky that we're able to provide those meals in a socially distanced way to those seniors so that they can enjoy the holiday. So that's the kind of seasonal thing we're dealing with. The other thing we're seeing is normally with the seasons, we see um, in the winter months uh, an increase in, in depression and anxiety. And so now we're seeing that pop up sooner because as people are feeling safer at home and isolating more, that only increases their sense of depression and isolation. Describe that socially distant Thanksgiving event. So basically what we're doing is um, the, the on our campus, there's a catering uh, facility on our campus. So they're preparing the meals as if they would normally. Um, and then we're, in, we're packaging individual meals for older adults. And then we've got uh, 100 cars that are going to line up in a carpool style and come through, pick up the meals, 
pick up their delivery addresses where they're going to drop the meals off and then go drop the meals off at their destination and not go in the homes, but, you know, leave the meals with the senior by the door. And um, inside the box is a card um, with a nice note. And we also ask the children in the community to decorate Thanksgiving cards that are going to go in as well. So it's going to be a big carpool line with people driving by, getting their meals, and then going out and delivering them. It, a version of the driveway birthday party that we've all exactly. gotten used to. <laughs> yeah, yes. yeah, exactly. Yeah. Turkeys can't fly, but Thanksgiving can have drive-bys. It's a double-edged sword for the seniors. Um, the, most of the people that come to our Thanksgiving don't have family or friends. So when they come, it's because they don't have anywhere else to go. So, you know, they're already feeling isolated and sad. And so this is just something that we can do as a community to brighten their day, which I think is a really nice thing. Speaking with Danielle Hartman, the CEO of Jewish Family Services based in Boca Raton. Still to come, feeding the crowds even when there is no professional football. It's not the hot dogs and the chicken tenders in, in, that, in that group. I know people love those, but it, it, it's definitely the same meals that kind of would get served in the game there. We're back on the Sunshine Economy here on WLRN. I'm Tom Hudson. Don't forget that you can listen on your smart speaker by asking that speaker to play WLRN. And also be sure to download the WLRN app for iPhone or Android devices, and you can listen live right there on your device. If this were a normal November, over 65,000 people would be crowded into Hard Rock Stadium for a Sunday Dolphins game or a Miami Hurricanes college football game on a Saturday. But of course, this is far from a normal November. Only 13,000 fans have been allowed at home games so far this year because of the pandemic, and Dolphin games have actually been averaging fewer fans than that limit. But people have been showing up each day at the stadium for food. It's a lot of activity. Jason Jenkins is the head of communications and community affairs with the Miami Dolphins. Starting June 1st, we started this food relief program, a multi-million dollar commitment, with the hope to uh, not only feed people with food insecurity, but also provide jobs for a lot of our game day staff, security staff that were were impacted by the loss of COVID-19 and the loss of events we had at the stadium. First with the ban on big events, then the capacity limitations on the stadium, the Dolphins had kitchen capacity. Those food stands would not be cooking for anywhere near the same crowds that would normally come, hurting jobs, while at the same time, the demand for food shot up as more people found themselves out of work because of the virus. With no Miami Open, no Jazz in the Gardens, none of the events that we've had, a lot of people uh, were were out. But now, one of the byproducts of this is now they have a more consistent ability to come in and work. The Dolphins' effort is one of several that began in response to the twin challenges of job losses and growing food insecurity in South Florida. Dolphins owner Stephen Ross provided the initial $2 million seed money to the Miami Dolphins Foundation for this food relief effort. Jenkins said the program works primarily with local organizations, such as churches. The groups request vouchers online, which in turn can be handed out to people in need or used to pick up several dozen meals and then those meals handed out. These are meals that, you know, they're not, you know, just uh, 
their sandwiches thrown together, you know, with, you know, ham and cheese. I mean, these are gourmet meals. I mean, these, these are meals that, uh, that, you know, you would be proud to get and receive and, and not feel as just, hey, somebody just slapped together something here. I mean, it's, it's real legit. Better than game day meals? It, it's, it's actually it's actually the same. It's not the hot dogs and the chicken tenders and in, in, in that group. I know people love those, uh, you know, as well. But it, it, it's definitely the same meals that kind of would get served in the game day. According to the Dolphins, its food relief program has spent almost seven hundred fifty thousand dollars since it began five months ago, and has no plans to stop anytime soon. The need is uh, still going on, and so uh, our needs have steadily, uh, you know, increased, you know, during this time. Uh, we expect October has, has been one of our was one of our bigger months. Uh, November, obviously, with the holidays coming in in December as well, uh, the need is um, you know immense. It's one thing to put this together in June and see what kind of demand there is initially. It's another thing to be almost six months later and still seeing sustained demand. How long can this program last? Well, the whole idea with the program was not to be like a, a one day event or just a one off, and you know, just from a charitable donation. Uh, we started in June. Our hope is to go at least a year. So we're looking at least till, until June of uh, next year, and we'll see what the support and how it's going and what the need will be, you know, and assess then. The program also targets local restaurants in and around the stadium. After all, the economic activity generated by a Dolphins or Hurricanes game extends far beyond Hard Rock Stadium. The travel and spillover effect in restaurants and bars has been hurt. First, the restaurants were shut down for several weeks during the springtime, and now the football crowds have not come back. At least $1 million of the Dolphins Foundation food effort is earmarked for minority-owned restaurants. One of the offshoots of this is that we've also worked with uh, local minority-owned restaurants, you know, Hispanic, African-American, LGBTQ, women's restaurants as well, to really enrich enrich them as well. So that's that's been one of the good things to see is that you know, there's a lot of restaurants, a lot of businesses that, that want to help during COVID-19, but they've lost employees, they've lost staff, uh, they've lost the ability to help. And so we wanted to make sure we made a financial impact to them and a financial commitment to the community and these businesses, you know, in and around our community that need that help and to purchase meals from them as well for them to serve the community also. How has who you've helped changed, if at all, during the pandemic and the almost six months this program's been in place? Well, it's it's more so uh, more so as an expansion, and and you know, food insecurity is it, you know it, it knows no race, it knows no gender, it knows no zip code. I mean, it's it's a real impact and a long term impact for people that have you know lost jobs, you know, lost loved ones, and lost the ability you know to work you know as well. And so uh, we we just expanded as the need has grown. You know, the need is immense, and so that's one of the things that we have seen as the months have gone on the need is run on as well too. So that was the whole goal of uh, doing this for at least a year and we'll, and we'll see how it goes. How does this food relief program kind of compare to the other types of uh, community programs that the dolphins have been involved with? I'm thinking for instance of, of, of the cancer rides and some of those other kind of healthcare oriented uh, efforts uh, that the dolphins have been so involved with. It's one of our, our biggest and largest commitments, uh, for sure. You, uh, with, with our Dolphins Challenge Cancer Program uh, that we have, we put a lot of uh, work and effort into Sylvester, you know, Comprehensive Cancer Center. But this is a, a very, you know, long-term, sustained initiative. And so uh, this is something that we're committed to organizationally. 
That's Jason Jenkins. He is the head of community affairs with the Miami Dolphins. Now, the team's foundation food relief effort expects to feed more than 21,000 people in South Florida this week during Thanksgiving with food from Hard Rock Stadium and meals from minority-owned restaurants. Still to come on our program today, checking in with a banker, baker, and bartender operating through the pandemic economy. We did something that is a sign of the times in this just low-rate environment that we're in. We realize that in order to scale quicker, we do need some kind of additional resources and talent. I've been busy. It's just been, like, slow-moving. We're back on the Sunshine Economy on WLRN. I'm Tom Hudson. Thanks for listening. Don't forget to subscribe to our podcast by searching Sunshine Economy on your podcast app and then, of course, hitting the subscribe button. Thank you. The week before Thanksgiving was an important one for the banker, baker, and bartender we've been checking in with each week here on the Sunshine Economy. The bartender, Keisha Scott in Boynton Beach, is getting ready to move back to Austin, Texas, The baker, Pilar Guzman Zavala, with Half Moon Empanadas, shifted her attention fully to the future of her company. And the banker, Ginger Martin, with American National Bank in Fort Lauderdale, made a multi-million dollar decision about using some of the bank's cash. We just uh, got finished Thursday having our monthly uh, board meeting. And um, we did something that uh, is just kind of a a sign of the times in this just low rate environment uh, that we're in. We made a decision to purchase 25 million in investments, uh, Freddie Mac, Fannie Mae, uh, mortgage-backed securities. And we were excited to get a 1.3% yield on that. (laughs) And I mean, because rates are so low, and we're so liquid with cash. I mean, I had you know 60 million setting at uh, at the Federal Reserve Bank that I'm earning 10 basis points on. We bankers, we talk in basis points. 100 basis points is one percentage point. So when I talk 10 basis points, and then I had another 30 million that I was earning 25 basis points on. What we prefer to do is to put that out there in loans because, you know, I, I would say our average rate on, on commercial real estate loans now is, is in that four and a half, four and a quarter range. As we've been talking, we've had good loan demand. In fact, we approved about $10 million worth of, of loans. And so that, that goes in that 4.25% bucket. But, you know, moving $25 million over into investments earning one3 you know, that was just one of those strategies that we felt like we needed to do to pick up some yield. But it just goes to show how low, uh, you know, rates are. I've got more. I've got excess. I've got excess liquidity, which is not a bad thing, but you just got to figure out how to deploy it and actually try to make uh, some yield on that. Ginger Martin is the CEO at American National Bank in Fort Lauderdale. She was back in the office last week after quarantining at home for the previous two weeks. 
Her college-age daughter had tested positive for COVID-19 earlier this month. Ginger says she's doing fine. Ginger tested negative. November has been a good month for Pilar Guzman Zavala with Half Moon Empanadas. Business has been better than expected even with the pandemic. She's been looking at property to open two new locations next year, and she won her bid to open an outlet inside Denver International Airport. That will be the company's first store outside of South Florida. All of it has had her shifting her focus fully to the future. And while exciting, certainly, it also means making tough decisions now about how to get there. The week was a very um, interesting week because I think it's uh, this week is a before and after for the company kind of week. Uh, uh, so we we really put some thought uh, and had several different meetings and conversations about scaling and actually, you know, putting in paper exactly what that will require in terms of resources. Um, and so we realized that in order to scale quicker, we do need um, some kind of additional resources and talent. And so I think that we are now very like, you know, towards the action. How do we get that actually happen with numbers and, and talking to people? And so it's, it's really, really exciting because um, I think we, you know, we've been saying it. We, we know that we're scaling, but I think this week it really became clear that we are we're taking steps, you know, or concrete actions to do that. As a small business, that's a really difficult thing to do, um, to, to take a moment to pause and get outside the day-to-day craziness and look at the future. And I had the chance, I had two days of retreat. Uh, I had like a food entrepreneur retreat. Um, and I, so I had some sessions of like strategy and thinking. That is important. And, and I don't think, you know, small businesses understand that enough because we're dealing with so much in the day-to-day, but it's as important uh, as the day-to-day because otherwise you will stay in the same place. Uh, but it's a challenge, you know. What The other part of my week uh, was spent on thinking about structure and thinking about the human resources and the team. Not everything is easy and good, you know. It's uh, I've had to make a couple of decisions this week of changing people. That's the part that I don't like because I... I wish it would be like a happy place every time with everybody. And if I want to be a good business owner, I have to be very objective. I fire one of my managers because it's not the expectation. Uh, and I need to, in order for me to scale, I need to have the level of people at an A plus. And you got to do what you got to do. It is tough because I honestly, on the human side, I, I love everybody that works with me, but my philosophy is like, this is a company where you're going to grow, where you're going to be okay. You're going to grow. People are going to love each other, respect each other. We're going to be honest. There's a path for everybody to grow, but you have to show excellence. And if you don't, then there's no place for you in our company. Pilar Guzman Zavala with Half Moon Empanadas. Keisha Scott is getting ready for her future, which is not in South Florida. She's been a bartender and server in Boynton Beach since moving here almost two years ago with her boyfriend. But the two decided to return to Austin, Texas. They move next month. In the meantime, she's bartending as much as she can, trying to save money. Just a regular old week in the life of Keisha. (laughs) But it was kind of slow financially for both of us. Um, So I'm just thinking that it's just one of those... 
just fluke kind of weeks with the weather and, you know, got Thanksgiving right around the corner. So just trying to figure out the in-between plans and, you know, when we're going to pack and how, how long we're both going to work up until. <laughs> it's weird because it's like we were, I've been busy. It's just been like slow moving, like not really turning tables. There's a lot of campers. So it's been, maybe it was just me. You know, it was just like my my week to get that kind of section. Uh, camper, somebody that will um, literally take their entire time. <laughs> so it will be like they'll pay and then they'll just sit. You know, they'll, they'll sit, they'll ask for the refills and then they'll just chat. And you don't want to be rude, you know, but at the same time, you're like, OK, it's a, don't you got somewhere else to be? <laughs> I mean, pay rent for this table, please. It's like I would be at work for, you know, my shift and I'd have three, four tables, which, you know, that's not much. <laughs> Keisha Scott in Boynton Beach, the bartender of our bartender, baker and banker trio of women. We check in with each week as we hear how they're navigating through the pandemic economy. Be sure to follow WLRN on social media. We are on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram. And of course, that podcast for the Sunshine Economy through your podcast app, and then clicking subscribe. Joe Johnson is our technical director. Polly Landis is our booking producer. Katie Lepre is our engagement editor. I'm Tom Hudson. Thanks for listening.